This is exactly right. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has all of that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. Okay. You hear me okay? Yes, I can. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, it's a little scratchy, but we can do a cleaner interview later. So let's just get going. Okay, good deal. Let's talk about this story, which is in your family tree and a story you know a lot about. Um, yeah. This is Patricia Childs, whose relative from deep in her family tree was troubled right from the start of his life. His name was Eugene Burt, and he lived in Austin, Texas in the late 1800s. Eugene was never a particularly successful person. He always lived in the shadows of other people in his family. His ambitious older brothers were both businessmen. His father was the city's physician, a brilliant mind who used the bodies of victims to help investigators solve crimes. All three of the elder Burt's were well-respected professionals, but Eugene was not. He was a shyster, a manipulator, and an envious man who would eventually become a killer. So this story isn't really a whodunit, but more like, who does he kill? And why? Was he born a killer? Or were there other reasons? Unraveling all of this will be a challenge. So, Patricia, there's no question that Eugene did this, right? This is more about why he did it, what was the reason behind it, and it's really complicated. And the fact that this takes place in the 1800s makes it even more complicated. Um, When you're talking about mental illness at that point, we haven't come too far beyond thinking that the moon is what makes people go berserk, right? Right. I write about psychiatry in the 1800s, and my research has found that there were some interesting but pretty disturbing ideas back then, like epilepsy was considered a mental illness in the 1800s. There was a claim that was made that was disturbing to me that um, the mother was insane while she had been carrying him in her womb. Right. And so that could have affected him. What did you think about that? Imagine the the guilt that someone would feel if they were having a hormone, what we now would think of as a hormonal imbalance or, or, you know, depression while they're carrying a child. That that can be quite common. 
but for someone to insinuate that 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 could cause your your baby to become you know a murderer i mean and i thought wow I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a crime historian and the author of the new audiobook, The Ghost Club, and the book, All That Is Wicked. And this is our new season of Tenfold More Wicked. For this season, we're in 1890s Austin, Texas, and that's where I live. I teach journalism at the University of Texas. We are calling this story The Annihilator, but this isn't a tale about the city's famous servant girl annihilator or at least not only about the Servant Girl Annihilator. That story is woven in because some of the main characters were involved with that series of murders a few years earlier. This story is about a different set of murders, when a young man who saw firsthand what that killer did to women decided one night to pick up an axe. But it's all connected to the Servant Girl Annihilator. We're going to try to figure out just how connected they are. Eugene Bird's case takes place about a decade later. This is a case about murder and families and mental illness and the wrong type of legacy. Let's take this from the beginning with a set of murders a decade before the ones we're going to be focusing on this season. The Servant Girl Annihilator Murders. Because, as we'll see, in a curious twist of fate, those murders will end up being intimately connected to the murders of Eugene Burt's family through his own father. So here's a brief summary. Between 1884 and 1885 in Austin, Texas, someone murdered eight people. Several were lobotomized and then killed with a knife or an axe. You would think that the press and the law would be all over this story, but in fact, they weren't. Because in this case, the five victims were women of color, thus the name The Servant Girl Annihilator. The killer also murdered one man of color. But white reporters paid little attention because the murders only affected a disenfranchised group who were marginalized to begin with. Six gruesome axe attacks weren't enough to attract the press, until two white women were murdered on Christmas Eve in 1885. Then the press paid attention. People in Austin panicked, and the hunt for the servant girl annihilator began complete with bloodhounds. Michael Barnes is a local historian, a writer, and a podcaster who has studied the story of the servant girl annihilator. He gives us context on that case which will, in turn, give us context on our own case. Our coverage is always somewhat dictated by the national interest in a local story. It was the first famous case of a serial killer, and so uh, newspapers from all across the country, St. Louis, Chicago, Boston, uh, New York, sent reporters to Austin to cover it. These were very violent murders because they involved a brutal weapon and they also involved sexual assault. And if those two things weren't disturbing enough, the killer did something highly unusual, as I mentioned before. He lobotomized some of his victims by driving a sharp metal object through their heads to torture them and the people who would discover their bodies. 
Local tour guide and historian Monica Ballard explains. There was a metal pin smaller than like a railroad tie nail, but certainly larger than a hat pin or something like that, hammered through the ear into the brain. Like with a hammer? Like somebody took a yeah, hammer? Or, the, or the other side of an axe or something like that. Why would a killer lobotomize his victim? Serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer had drilled holes in the heads of some of his victims while they were drugged before he killed them. Dahmer thought he could control them by making them zombies. A lobotomy would be incredibly cruel, the act of a sadistic, disturbed person who reveled in causing someone pain. And finding a killer like that would be difficult for Austin's law enforcement, such as it was. In the 1800s, Austin was still a little bit like the Wild West. There was no organized police force, no real law and order. So when investigators arrived at each crime scene, they had a tough time. And after each murder, there was one person who was consistently present, the city's physician. His name was William Burt, and he was a leader in the community. He was educated and respected, even revered. Whenever the 47-year-old doctor was notified of the crime, he would travel to that part of the city, unzip his medical bag, and examine the victims. Bert was the man who helped investigators solve crime by providing them with physical evidence. He might run tests, study bullet holes, and determine cause of death. Dr. William Burt was incredibly important. His medical knowledge was respected. He understood death. And in late December of 1885, as William Burt examined one of the final two victims of the servant girl annihilator, someone else gazed down at her body, his teenage son. Eugene had been at home when police officers knocked on his father's door, requesting that Dr. Burt report to a murder scene. I know this is a lot of information up front about this story, but it's important that you have context because one of the things we want to know is this. If this young man saw the scene of an axe murder, and then more than a decade later did almost the same thing, what did that mean? Because it must have meant something. But before we get into all of that, let's go back even farther in time to find out the history of the Burt family, because it's an interesting and an important history. On February 29, 1860, William Jefferson Burt married Cynthia Melinda Chloe Palmer. Friends and family called her Cleo. They were originally from Georgia, and they were just two years apart in age. And they seemed to really want children because they had three of them pretty quickly. They didn't even wait until William finished medical school. They had three boys who were each two years apart. Silas Montrose Burt was the eldest, named after his mother's father. Everyone called him Monty. He was born in Georgia in 1865, just three months after the end of the Civil War. Roscoe came two years later in 1867, after the Burts moved to Texas. And then Eugene was born two years after that in 1869. I asked Patricia Childs where her family line was in the Burt family history. Cleo Palmer was the mother of William Eugene. She's a Palmer. So it's through the Palmers, and then you've got to go through all the Palmers to get up to 
where Cleo married William Jefferson and they had William Eugene. So you're related to Eugene's mother, Cleo, and so is Julie. Julie, wait till you talk to Julie. She lives and breathes genealogy. Julie Norton is a former statistician and she really does live and breathe genealogy. She's done a tremendous amount of research on her family. So I didn't really know anything until uh, Patricia asked me. And so I looked at the newspaper article. And because I was interested in him, of course, I'm interested in his two brothers. And did notice that they ran a shoe business there in Austin. And they had married two sisters who were second generation. uh, That is, their parents were born in France and They were born here. And that, of course, sets up a dynamic of success, really. At least usually it does, because everybody thinks America's paved with with gold. They worked hard, and their husbands worked hard. It's very successful shoe business. So Roscoe and Monty married sisters, and they both became successful businessmen. But right now, we're talking about the childhoods of the Burt boys. All three kids were educated in public schools. They went to the Protestant church near their home, and Eugene and his brothers seemed to enjoy Sunday services. Their mother, Cleo, was a homemaker, and their father was a physician. After Dr. Burt finished medical school in 1861, he became a local physician and a surgeon back in Georgia. But then he wanted a more stable position, so he took a job as the city physician for Austin, Texas. A city physician is now an antiquated job in America, but it's still a career in some European countries. In 1800s Texas, a city physician was appointed by the city council, and they were responsible for overseeing the health of the city's residents. They would supervise how the poor were treated medically, particularly during epidemics like cholera. They supervised pharmacies and midwives and barbershops and, of course, other physicians. And they would also guide the city's sanitation plan. Dr. William Burt seemed to be especially concerned about that aspect of his job. I do know that he was a great proponent of sanitation. He wrote articles and op-eds for the newspaper and, uh, and various medical journals about sanitation efforts, about the sewage system. And, and so he was, a, he was a terrific proponent of sanitary conditions. Dr. Burt seemed community-oriented and the city relied on him for his medical experience and for his knowledge of examining patients who were victims of crime. He reported to all crime scenes, and he conducted autopsies in suspected murder cases. Dr. Burt was often called to court for all different types of cases. The year before, he had investigated the stabbing of a man in his home in downtown Austin. In court, Burt said this, I examined the person of L.E. Edwards, I saw him in the bedroom near his office. He was sitting with his shirt off and with his back to the door, the upper part of his body exposed. Upon examination, found six puncture wounds. In the 1880s, Dr. Burt solved medical mysteries and crimes. And it sounds like Austin was pretty wild in the 19th century. I asked local historian Michael Barnes about Austin almost 150 years ago. Can you give me an idea of what society was like in general in Austin in the late 1800s? It was about 20,000 people at most. It did not have paved streets. It was still a little bit of a frontier town. It didn't have a lot of wealth. 
it finally got a railroad in 1871. It was not an, an industrial center, even though they tried to do that with a, a, a dam they built on the Colorado River in the 1890s. It just never happened. It was a, a kind of a backwater, and they still say a, a sleepy college and capital town. That's really all there was. There were only two businesses, and that was the university and capital. Austin is the capital of Texas, so many people then and now worked at the Capitol building to help support the state government. And religion was important to Austinites. One of the fastest growing Christian churches in America was the Catholic Church. One of the most revered churches in Austin is St. Mary Cathedral on 10th and Brazos downtown. The church itself began in 1850 as a small stone church named St. Patrick's, about a block south of the current building. Ted Eubanks is a parishioner at St. Mary's, and he's done extensive research on the cathedral's history, as well as the history of Catholics in Austin. We talked about the demographic of Austin in the late 1800s. Well, it would have been largely white, and many of the members would have been some European derivation. We had Irish We had German, we've had a few British, some French, but it was a mixture. Because remember, everybody in Austin came from somewhere at the beginning. It's also the beginning of the working class. There was no great wealth in the city. Who were the Catholics in Austin during this time? Were many of them immigrants? Those were German and Czech and Polish moving into this area, and they were Catholic. So even at that time, there's a growing Catholic church. St. Mary Cathedral played a big role in the story of the Burtz. It would become a central source of conflict for a very troubled family. The church was important, but in the time of Reconstruction after the Civil War, politics were also big. I spoke to University of Texas history professor Walter Banger. So the 1890s is intensely competitive politically. There's still in some areas a viable Republican Party, mainly African-American voters in the 1890s. There's still uh, a strong Democratic Party, but not as strong as it would be by the 1920s and 30s. And so the politics is intensely competitive, and this sometimes led to violence. There are increasing attempts to, maybe the word is civilize, a place like Austin. There were gun control laws then that more strict than now, actually. Austinites seemed to take crime seriously, except, of course, unless it involved people of color, particularly women of color, like the victims of the Servant Girl Annihilator. The level of violence that killer seemed to enjoy hadn't happened in Austin before 1884, but just 15 years later, it would repeat itself in the Burt family. And because of what would happen inside one little house just three blocks from the church, mental health experts would study Eugene Burt's case for decades afterward. When the Burt boys were young, the family seemed happy. But in 
But you never really know about a marriage or the family dynamic. Clearly, something was really off with the Burt's. Like most families, their history was complicated. And Patricia Childs says there seemed to be an odd relationship between the three brothers. Roscoe and Monty were clearly close as children, and they would become even closer as adults. But Eugene seemed isolated from the beginning. They were only two years apart in age. That was interesting to me. It would seem that in a normal family, they would have been kind of teamed up, right? Like comrades running around on a summer day, what are we going to do next? And I don't know if they had that kind of relationship, though. He seemed to be by himself. Maybe he was a sickly child. In 1876, when Eugene was just seven years old, he almost died from pneumonia. He was dangerously ill for three days. Still, Eugene seemed almost aloof as he grew older. But the family had bigger problems than a distant younger brother. Cleo Burt seemed to have mental health issues, Considering that today, almost 20% of American adults are experiencing mental illness, it's not surprising it was present 150 years ago. But it's hard to know what that percentage was back in the 1800s because there were very few distinctions between symptoms that were connected to behavior. Even epilepsy was considered a mental illness at the time. And as we've talked about in other seasons, in the early 1800s, Humane care for the mentally ill was not the norm. In 1884, when Eugene was just about 15, a local newspaper reported that Cleo took a train out of town with her son. The paper said that it was in the interest of her health. That's all it said. She had been previously institutionalized for having frequent outbursts, and they seemed to begin with her last pregnancy, when she was pregnant with Eugene. Dr. Burt had many friends. Most of them were fellow physicians. Monica Ballard says that Dr. Burt told one friend that he worried about his young son's future because of his mother's pregnancy. Dr. Burt was very concerned about his son because when his wife was pregnant with him, she had a very difficult pregnancy. She had moments of mania where she had to be restrained. He was concerned because insanity did run in his wife's family. And so when he saw these predilections come forth in Eugene, he expressed to Dr. Smoot his concern about the mental health of William Eugene. But the trip she took with Eugene was likely for a reason other than mental health concerns. That year, Cleo lost her eyesight. And later, she lost her hearing. And those afflictions would plague her for the rest of her life, which didn't help her mental illness. And then it turns out that mental illness was present in many of Cleo Palmer Burt's close relatives, according to Dr. Burt. Patricia Childs did extensive research on this part of Cleo's family, the family tree she's part of. I have this rattly stack of stuff here that I had all spread out like a deck of cards on the table before me. She found information on Cleo's father, Eugene's maternal grandfather. 
Just a second, I have a piece of paper here. I went to a census and I was actually able to track the family through the census. And it kept showing the, this individual as a, this was the Silas Boone Palmer, who was said to have some difficulties. Psychiatrists had labeled Silas Boone Palmer as legally insane. And he was admitted to a mental health facility in Georgia where her family was from. After Silas was released, Cleo's father had to have a guardian for three years. Yes, he was in a sanitarium. For a couple of years, someone had taken over his farming. So that looked like a likely clue. And that's something wonderful you can do when you're working through the records. When you can find something tangible that way, I'm sure you do that a lot. Cleo's brother had also been committed, but then he died at the age of 20. I don't know why. She had another sister who was described as an invalid and at least three cousins with epilepsy, which I've mentioned several times was considered a mental illness. So mental health issues were actually relatively common on Eugene Burt's mother's side. But it didn't stop there. Dr. Burt admitted to mental illness on his side of the family too. His grandfather suffered from what the doctors called violent paroxysms which essentially means that he had emotional outbursts. The doctor wrote in his report that Dr. Burt's grandfather, quote, gradually went down into stupidity and died. Dr. Burt also had numerous cousins with epilepsy. At least that was a diagnosis in the mid-1800s. Many of these people that we're talking about are men. But for Cleo Burt, a woman, the diagnosis might not have been particularly objective. Victorian women were, you know, oh my God, they were so straight-laced and literally buttoned up, cinched up tight to the point where they suffered from hysteria, mainly because they couldn't breathe because of the corsets. They were so bound up under rigorous fashion requirements that they could not catch their breaths. So they were said to be suffering from hysteria and they were given smelling salts. You know, the whole Victorian sanitarium, sanatorium sort of arrangement where there was this theory that if the, if the exterior surroundings are calm and pleasant to experience, then your insides will be calm and pleasant as well. And then you would finally be pleasant and you would behave normally. And that's why so many of the asylums and sanitariums and sanatoriums were these places where, where people would take the family, not to go inside, mind you, but to enjoy the grounds and go and see the swans at the lake and feed the ducks and have picnics on the grounds of the asylum. We know that mental illness ran throughout the family of Eugene's mother, Cleo Palmer. Julie Norton is related to Cleo, and she says that she hasn't been at all surprised to learn about the depth of the history of mental health struggles in her own family. I do know that there is, in every family, not just mine, some mental illness, some psychotic breaks that happen. Later, Julie will talk about her own sister's struggle with a different issue, one that we'll need to talk about with this case, schizophrenia.
So Eugene Burt's mental health issues were muddled and unclear. There was certainly a family history of mental illness, but with Eugene, the issues were covered up if he had them at all. Still, clues from his past might tell us something, and they might also point us towards what would happen with him in the future. Monica Ballard says that Eugene was certainly a very troubled child. He stole, he lied. That happens. I did both of those things when I was a kid. Not a lot, but I learned my lesson eventually. When Eugene was eight, he stole a neighbor's purse. When he finally confessed, he said he wanted the coins inside. He planned to take them and put them under a rock in the backyard, which would cause them to rot and turn to gold. It's hard to know how serious that incident was, but Dr. Smoot, the family friend, and Eugene's father both shamed the boy, trying to scare him into never stealing again. But the tactic didn't work, and soon Eugene began showing more disturbing behavior. The biggest and most disturbing incident happened later that same year. He killed his brother Roscoe's rabbit, drove a 20-penny nail through its midsection, Dr. Burt and uh, Dr. Uh, Smoot found the rabbit in the backyard, and Eugene owned up to it and said, oh, yeah, I want to be a doctor like my father, and I wanted to cut it open and see how it worked. Eugene was just eight. So clearly, there's a lot to talk about with that incident. It's violent and shocking and upsetting, and it traumatized Roscoe and worried his parents. But at the same time, Eugene didn't deny it. He wasn't mad at Roscoe, and he didn't do it out of revenge. He said he did it out of curiosity. Patricia Childs wonders if Eugene Burt, as a teenager, was actually not mentally ill. What if he should have had a different diagnosis? He was a very unusual 15-year-old because he was a very unusual young man. I think today we might use the word sociopath or a psychopath. Something like that would have the possibility of bringing up an excitement or an interest in him that would go with some of the descriptions that people gave of his childhood proclivities, would you call them? He, He seemed to fixate on things in an odd kind of way. Eugene killed Roscoe's rabbit just a few years before the term psychopath was coined in Germany in the 1880s. Psychopathy comes from the Greek roots meaning suffering soul, which is interesting because it seems like those who actually suffer the most are the people in the psychopath's orbit. Of course, the person with psychopathy might have their own internal struggles, or maybe not. So did Eugene's act of murdering a rabbit in such a ghastly way mean he was destined to kill people? We hear often how fledgling serial killers begin testing murder on animals. Perhaps Eugene Burt wasn't mentally ill, or perhaps he also wasn't someone with psychopathy. A few of the folks I spoke with suspect that Eugene had seen his father, the city physician, at work with dead bodies. Perhaps he had just become disaffected by death and curious about it, as his father was. Dr. Christine Montrose is an associate professor of psychiatry at Brown University. She's also an inpatient psychiatrist who performs forensic psychiatric examinations. I asked her about red flags in childhood. 
There are a collection of behaviors in childhood that can raise a flag of concern for what we think of as sociopathy in an adult. So, um, you know, when we do forensic evaluations, there are some courts for which you would ask questions of the, the defendant. What kind of questions? So things like, did you steal from people? Did you steal from people behind their back? Or did you take things from people directly? Did you ever set fires intending to cause damage? Did you skip school a lot before the age of 13? Did you run away from home more than a couple times but you know, before the age of 13? How much trouble did you and your friends get into? Did you were you physically violent? Did you ever use a weapon to hurt someone? Were you ever physically or sexually cruel to someone else? What about hurting animals? Cruelty to animals is one of those questions that raises a flag. I think when you think about children and the ability of a child to harm an animal or maybe even take pleasure in harming an animal, that, that's a, a flag for concern. But it's likely a combination of these actions, maybe not just one, right? There have been studies that indicate that children who demonstrate a collection of these kinds of behaviors can be at greater risk of developing sociopathy later in life. Eugene Burt had exhibited quite a few of the behaviors, bad choices, on Dr. Montrose's list. He had stolen, he had lied, and he was cruel to animals, or at least one animal that we know of. And as he grew older, Eugene never quite seemed to get it together and he had trouble holding down a job. By 1888, his brothers Monty and Roscoe were married with children, and they had several different businesses. When Roscoe got married, the blurb in the paper read, Mr. Burt is one of our most active and progressive young businessmen. But Eugene, who was the youngest, never seemed to have that kind of ambition. And then something happened. Eugene met a young woman who loved him and she saw the good in him. Her name was Anna Powers. Her family called her Annie, and she wanted to settle down and have children with Eugene. Annie and Eugene lived in Austin on 7th Street and Brazos, not far from her mother, Elizabeth Powers, as well as her sister, Agnes. Elizabeth was originally from Waterford, Ireland, and they were a traditional Irish Catholic family. Agnes and Annie were seven years apart, but they were very close. And later in life, Annie's sister and her mother would become her strongest advocates. Annie Powers was four months older than Eugene, and he swept her off her feet. It's hard to tell how they met exactly, but she was in the right place at the right time. On December 14, 1891, Annie Powers married William Eugene Burt. As was custom, the local paper wrote a blurb about it. It read, The wedding was a quiet affair, only the family of both parties being present. After partaking of an elegant supper prepared by Mr. J.B. Billingson, the happy couple left on the evening train for New Orleans. Annie didn't seem to mind that Eugene had trouble keeping a job. Maybe because she didn't have trouble keeping a job. It looks like Bert's wife was a bookkeeper before they married and perhaps while they were married. So she might have worked for the brothers. So Eugene's fiance was working with his brothers and soon so was he. But as you can imagine, 
Eugene's childhood habits of lying and cheating and stealing didn't stop when he became an adult. In fact, historian Monica Ballard says they became more serious. His brothers gave him every break possible, trying to set him up in his own business with a cigar store in New Orleans. And he pissed the money away. What? What happened? He never even made it to New Orleans. He ended up in in East Texas writing to them saying, ooh, I got sick and I need more money and ooh, this, that, and the other. And they finally just said, you know what? Come back to Austin. Come back. We'll give you a job in the shoe store. I'm assuming this was another big mistake. He would give merchandise away to people. And he'd say, take the shoes for a day and I'll, I'll find you. And if you like the shoes, you can give me the money for them. And he would go and find them and say, yeah, we, we like the shoes. And he'd collect the money and then he'd go back and tell his brothers, no, they, they, they didn't like the shoes. And they're not going to give you the money. So Eugene Burt was a thief and he wasn't above stealing from his own brothers. You've got successful brothers, you have an unsuccessful brother. There's sibling competition, no matter what you say. You have a mother that's going through, apparently, mental illness. And he's an angry human being. Eugene was a terrible businessman, and he seemed like an angry, bitter jerk who valued nothing and no one but himself. But that's not quite true, because even though Eugene might have been a failure at just about everything... He seemed to be a good husband and a good father. The couple had been married for just two years when they had their first daughter, Lucille, in 1893. Then two years later, Eleanor came along. Neighbors said that Eugene doted on the two little girls. He helped Annie around the house. He even cooked dinners for them, which was really unheard of in the 1800s. So why did things go so wrong for Eugene Burt that I'm now spending an entire season talking about the lives of his victims. Because in 1896, Eugene Burt would make a terrible decision, the last terrible decision in a long series of terrible decisions. The scene that he'd go on to create inside his home one summer night wasn't exactly unique to him. More than a decade earlier, When he joined his father in the home of one of the servant girl annihilator victims, Eugene Burt had seen blood, he had smelled a corpse, and he had felt the blade of a murder weapon. It was a moment he would never forget. Think about this then, 10 years go by, and this is, you know, seething and percolating in him. Maybe it just becomes too much. So could this violent scene from Eugene's past a shocking image of a lobotomized victim hacked to death with an axe on Christmas Eve, could it have become etched in his memory permanently? And could that image compel Eugene Burt to kill? His relative, Julie Norton, says she's certain that Eugene Burt is not the first murderer in her family. It's not surprising. We've all got these stories in our family. We've all got good stories, we've all got bad stories. My family's been in this country long enough. Name something bad that happened. They were part of that. You have to acknowledge it. It's it's all there. But Julie knows that not everyone has this kind of history in their own families. Eugene Bird had a troubling childhood and an even more troubling adulthood. And yet, he could have righted his ship. It's too bad for everyone that he chose to sink it. Soon, people close to him would die, some by his hand, some not. But who? 
And maybe even more importantly, why? On this season of Tenfold War Wicked on Exactly Right. I mean, it's, it's such a bizarre and traumatic set of facts for a 15-year-old to experience and the knowledge of all the other murders that were taking place. It certainly could influence someone who is already predisposed to an unbalanced situation. When I look at a criminal, I am offended by that person, but I also feel like there is some cause, something that drove him crazy. What was it? The only person that said he was acting strangely on the day of the murders was his housekeeper. And she mentioned that he was frantic and walking quickly. She expressed to her mother that Eugene's behavior was getting a little odd, that she would wake up to find him standing over her, watching her sleep. If you love a good, real ghost story, my new audiobook original, The Ghost Club, is available for pre-order now wherever audiobooks are sold. I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter, who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club, and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my new book, All That Is Wicked. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Natalie Wren. Editors Jason Whaling, David Fabello, and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Researcher Kate Winkler-Dawson. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.